Section 3 of By Ox Team to California, A Narrative of Crossing the Plains in 1860. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. By Ox Team to California, A Narrative of Crossing the Plains in 1860 by Lavinia Honeyman Porter. Section 3. Chapter 5. Indians. We gradually approached more desolate regions, where we could look for miles over immense distances, and see nothing but the long, dim perspective. And yet, no sooner were we settled in our camp at evening, and our fire lighted, when our Indian friends would appear, fathers and mothers, and, judging by their appearance of old age, grandfathers and grandmothers besides children of all ages squatting as was their custom on the ground watching silently though with greedy hungry eyes every mouthful that was cooked or eaten sitting so near my fire that i was compelled to step over their feet in getting to and from the mess box while i prepared my evening meal by many crude efforts in the sign language and an earnest use of a few Indian words that we had picked up among them, we attempted to carry on a sort of pidgin English with the various tribes with whom we came in contact. There were two words we found that were thoroughly understood by them and universally used wherever we met them, and they were biscuit and coffee. It would have been impossible for us to have fed any number of them but frequently I gave an old man or old woman a cup of coffee and a biscuit, which they greedily swallowed, or a lump of sugar to a child, which was seized with extreme avidity. After finishing our own meal, and scraping off the remnants of food, bones, and meat rinds from our plates to the ground, there would be a mad rush of every Indian for the refuse and it was amusing to see the scramble that would ensue for the discarded scraps after lingering a while and finding there was no prospect of getting anything more to eat they would slip away one by one as silently as they came but there was no sign of any habitation unless they burrowed in the ground when camping one sunday near the platte river we were surrounded by indians as usual whenever we stopped for any length of time and their continual attendance left us little privacy. This Sunday I had washed my long hair to free it from the dust of travel, and was engaged in brushing and combing out the tangles, having near me a small hand mirror. One brave, who had been watching me very intently, was such a hideous-looking creature that I wondered if he could know how repulsive he looked. Without a moment's thought, I took up the hand-glass and held it before him, I never saw such a look of surprise and consternation as came over his stolid countenance. He took the mirror in his hand, looked intently into it for some moments, turned it over, examined, and looked again. Then, taking it among the other Indians who were loitering in our camp, he showed them the mirror with their different reflections therein, which seemed to cause them much curious amusement. I think this must have been their first experience in seeing themselves as others saw them. After a while he brought the mirror back to me. I had given up all hopes of having it in my possession again. At length, 
this indian with several of his tribe silently departed but in a few hours returned with some new recruits all decked in their paint feathers beads and blankets approaching me he made signs for the mirror again when i handed it to him he burst forth in a guttural sort of laugh and immediately turned it on his new followers who in turn expressed much amusement at this first view of themselves the indians generally were not voluble but a wonderful flow of unintelligible sounds came to my ears as they discussed among themselves the merits or demerits of the strange little mirror a band of mounted sioux met us one day they were friendly in their advances and stopped to trade with us i would state here that the sioux indians were the finest looking warriors we had seen their ponies and horses were richly caparisoned and their blankets which were supplied by the united states government were gay with bright colors the headdress of the men was unique and imposing sable braids of hair fell down each side of their painted faces and the crowns of their heads were decorated with the colored feathers from the wild birds of the mountain and plain their buckskin jackets were jeweled with beads and hung with the teeth of wild animals descending from their long braids of hair were graduating discs of bright silver made from the half dollars that were paid them by the government these were hammered out very thin until the first was as large as a small saucer and the others grew gradually smaller as they reached nearly to the ground these discs were hung on strong but slender strips of buckskin and glittered gaily in the bright sunlight as the warriors mounted on their fleet ponies galloped over the plain we found the sioux tribe very friendly too friendly in fact for my peace of mind for one huge brave gaily bedecked and most grotesquely painted took a great fancy to me bringing a number of ponies to our camp he at length made my husband understand that he wanted me in exchange this was the first time i was really frightened at their advances though i knew they were a friendly band and under the care and protection of the government yet i was filled with fear that i could not wholly overcome and urged my husband to move on as rapidly as possible so we left our camp the next morning before the break of day about noon as we ascended some low rolling hills i looked back on the plain and saw a number of mounted indians approaching us very rapidly and driving a large band of ponies before them my heart almost ceased beating as we were completely at their mercy if they meant us harm finally they overtook us we halted our team and had a lengthy parley with them they proved to be the brave and his followers of the day before he had added more ponies to his band thinking my husband had refused to trade because they had not offered a sufficient number after numerous signs and shakes of the head they at last understood there was no prospect of business very reluctantly they mounted their ponies and left us to my great relief the next few days i rode very closely in the wagon before they departed however i cooked them a good dinner and james treated them liberally to his best tobacco so we parted good friends early in the forenoon of one eventful day 
we met the first warlike band of indians i was walking some distance ahead of the wagon when in that clear bright atmosphere there appeared on the level plain a cloud of dust far off to the left of our road i usually carried the field glasses with me and i quickly looked to see what i could discover at first the dust was so dense that the eye could not penetrate it but soon there was revealed the forms of many moving animals my first thoughts were buffaloes and i hurriedly retraced my steps to the wagon and the protection of my husband and brother i had scarcely reached the wagon before my ears were filled with the din of most uncanny character and out of the cloud of dust on numerous ponies rode a formidable-looking band of Indians, many of them arrayed in the most whimsical and barbarous style that one could imagine. There was not the slightest attempt at uniformity in costume. Some of them wore the discarded and ragged clothes of emigrants, from which hung strings of buckskin knotted with gay beads and buttons, and interspersed here and there with a tin spoon or fork stolen from the emigrants. Their faces were painted in the most grotesque manner, and their coarse and matted hair, which grew long and scraggy, was ornamented with tufts of feathers from the wild birds of the plain and the tails of wild animals. Some were attired in the usual breechcloth, while many were wrapped in gaudy blankets of red and blue. Among this motley crowd were several that might have been devils let loose from the so-called infernal regions for on their beetle brows were crowns made from buffalo horns their limbs naked to the knee were covered with buckskin leggings and on their feet were moccasins others had made great effort to array themselves in fanciful attire of skins peculiarly painted and embroidered by their skillful squaws yet we discovered among the number some few who were not dressed at all as they bore down on us in their rapid approach, we were almost speechless with fright. Our first impression was that we were to be annihilated at once. We saw at a glance that they were warriors ready for the fray, and had made elaborate preparations to go forth on the warpath. They were armed with all sorts of weapons, knives and shields of various and strange devices, but the bow and arrow the natural weapon of the red man was most in evidence they surrounded our wagon on all sides making numerous signs and gestures and uttering words of indian jargon that were greek to us for we could not understand a syllable then despairing of making themselves understood they pointed first east then west then to their ponies and held up their hands with extended fingers all in vain we could only shake our heads at last finding it was only a waste of time to parley with us their chieftain gave the command and remounting their ponies they sped away giving voice again to their blood-curdling yells and leaving us to recover slowly from our suspense we drew a long breath of relief when we realized that we were still possessed of our usual amount of hair we afterwards learned that they were in pursuit of some other marauding band of indians who had stolen and run off with a large number of their ponies. That night we camped near a few cottonwoods on the banks of a small stream. The wind blew in fitful gusts, and the limbs of the cottonwoods rocked restlessly, 
making mournful sounds from every side we were startled by noises we could not place strange rustlings caused us to peer sharply into the shadows footsteps seemed to stealthily approach and then skulk away even the thin and scraggy bushes appeared to suddenly close together as if someone were behind them and we feared that the indians of the day knowing that we were alone might surround us in the hours of darkness take us unawares and massacre us none of us slept through the long hours of that night we were afraid to close our eyes for fear of their stealthy return but dawn found us unmolested i have said that neither the indians nor ourselves could understand each other in conversation yet we found on several occasions that they had picked up and readily adopted a number of phrases from the emigrants particularly the teamsters whose vocabulary of profane words was extensive the usual salutation of the indians whom we first met was how but after hearing the irate teamsters from day to day cursing their overworked and often contrary cattle the indians very quickly adopted some of their pet phrases often when we met them they saluted us in this manner gee whoa ha g dash d d dash n u and did not appear to know that this was not the regular manner of saluting we saw but few indian lodges those we did see were of the sioux and pawnee tribes usually their camps were remote from the traveled highway we had been induced to take a shorter cut that took us in sight of one of their encampments these lodges were built in circular form a number of light poles forming the support around which were stretched buffalo hides which the squaws had ingeniously sewed together some of these lodges were unique in their way decorated and painted in accordance with the red man's idea of art with grotesque faces and queer figures of animals and strange hieroglyphics emblematic of something in their creed many of these tribes did not bury their dead perceiving at some distance poles set upright on the ground and what appeared to us like a huge shelf above them we saw on approaching nearer the form of a human body well wrapped in blankets and buffalo skins and found that it was the indian manner of burial a little familiarity with these aborigines will convince one that it needs a very poetic mind to make them even bearable we found them not only lazy but covered with vermin and while squatting around our camp it was the principal relaxation of the squaws to spend their time overlooking the heads of their papooses and catching and killing the insects that inhabited them very much to my disgust the indian man abhors labor and they looked on the white man with scorn and derision whenever they performed any duties to relieve the labors of their wives the squaw accepted her life of toil as her just due for being born a woman it was the squaw who dressed and tanned the skins and made the garments that the lazy indian wore it was she who manufactured the rough utensils in which the food was cooked it was she who took down and pitched the rude wigwam and gathered the fuel dressed and cooked the game 
often walking for miles to bring it home when her arrogant lord returned from the hunt. She made his rude tents after tanning and dressing the rough hides of which they were made, his moccasins and his clothing. In many of the tribes these women were exceedingly skillful, and it was wonderful what an amount of work they could accomplish with the most primitive tools. In addition to all this, when she felt the pangs of approaching motherhood, the squaw would betake herself to the banks of some nearby stream, and there, all alone, without the aid of a nurse or accoucheur, her babe would come into the world. After giving her newborn child a hasty dip in the cold stream, it was wrapped in a rough skin, strapped to a board, and borne back to camp on the mother's shoulders. Then, with all the stoicism for which the Indian character is noted, she resumed her interrupted duties. Chapter 6 Trials of the Spirit Thirsting for Water Gathering Buffalo Chips Sick on the Desert Bay Rum, Bergamot, and Castor Oil Mirage Even to the most courageous there were hours of depression and discouragement. Our days were not always sunshine, nor our route through pleasant lands. The fertile soil covered but a small portion of our journey between the Missouri River and Denver. After the first month or six weeks of our pilgrimage, the change of vegetation became very apparent. The sagebrush, that forerunner of sterile soil, began to crop out here and there. The further we traveled, the thicker it grew, particularly in the dry and sandy localities. Its only redeeming feature that I could discover was that it served for fuel in the absence of any other wood. We were amazed at the magnitude of these barren, unfenced plains. The occasional little hamlet was left behind, and only at rare intervals did we come on the solitary cabin of some brave preemptor, who showed more courage than wisdom in settling on such a forlorn hope in Uncle Sam's dominions. The wind had full sweep over these barren plains. Many times it was almost impossible for anyone to walk against it. Frequently we staked our wagon down with ropes and also our stock to keep them from stampeding, for the wind and showers of blinding sand came with such force that neither man nor beast could face it. At such times we would cook no food, but crawling into the wagon, tying down the covers on every side, were forced to content ourselves with dry crackers and molasses. These winds tried my patience sorely, and seemed to act directly on the nerves, and as for cooking around a campfire when the wind was blowing a gale, it required a greater amount of fortitude and self-control than I possessed. I tried to keep my hasty temper within bounds, but no matter on which side of the fire I stood when cooking, the ever-shifting smoke blinded me, and the gale whisked my short skirts over the fire until I found not only my clothes but my temper ablaze. I would make a brave effort to be cheerful and patient until the camp work was done. Then, starting out ahead of the team and my men folks, when I thought I had gone beyond hearing distance, I would throw myself down on the unfriendly desert 
and give way like a child to sobs and tears wishing myself back home with my friends and chiding myself for consenting to take this wild goose chase but after a good cry i would feel relieved and long before i was again visible to husband or brother i had assumed a more cheerful frame of mind whether i felt it or not besides wind and rainstorms we would often encounter great swarms of gnats which would annoy our stock almost to the verge of madness stinging our own faces and hands getting into our food and making it impossible to drink our coffee without first skimming them off these swarms of insects would last two or three days before we would leave them behind us as we proceeded on our journey the streams of water grew smaller and further apart and the great plains drier and dustier there were days of travel with scarcely enough water for our stock and that so strongly impregnated with alkali that a very small quantity would satisfy oh how we longed for the sight of a cold clear spring of water we could sometimes see for miles ahead of us what looked to our longing eyes a lake of limpid water but on coming near it we found it was only a thin alkali incrustation covering many acres of the smooth sands and later on we were compelled to make a drive of nearly sixty miles without a drop of water for our stock our poor cattle were choked and dry with the great thirst when at last they scented water they were almost unmanageable and struck a bee-line for it paying not the slightest attention to the roadway but speeding as fast as they could travel over hills and hummocks caring not for the safety or comfort of those riding in the wagon while in this almost arid region we endeavored to keep our small keg filled with water but found it impossible to carry enough for our stock indeed we had to use it very sparingly ourselves through many parts of kansas nebraska and colorado the question of fuel was constantly before us days and days passed without seeing a piece of timber as big as one's little finger our only fuel was buffalo chips this was the sun-dried excrement of that animal it was my custom in the early hours of the afternoon as i walked to carry a basket or sack and fill it with buffalo chips often wandering a distance from the road to find a sufficient quantity with which to cook our evening meal and enough to bake our bread for the next day this proved at last to be quite a laborious task for me because the numerous caravans ahead of us had gathered up all that lay near the roadway and i was compelled to cover considerable territory before finding a sufficient supply the sack of buffalo chips became a heavy burden before i reached the wagon i had been performing this task for days when one afternoon we passed some low hills on which grew a few dwarfed and stunted pine trees they were only about a quarter of a mile from the road and i asked james and my brother to drive to them and cut me enough of the wood to last us for a day or two but men on the plains i had found were not so accommodating nor 
so ready to serve or wait upon women as they were in more civilized communities driving a lot of wayward cattle all day in the hot sun over heavy roads of sand and dust was not conducive to politeness or accommodation when the drivers were weary and footsore they were none too ready to deviate a hand's breadth from the traveled road therefore as it required almost half a mile of extra effort to get that wood for me they thought it unnecessary trouble and refused i was feeling somewhat under the weather and unusually tired and crawling into the wagon told them if they wanted fuel for the evening meal they could get it themselves and cooked the meal also and laying my head down on a pillow i cried myself to sleep when i awakened i found that we had camped and they were taking me at my word the only fuel in sight was across the deep and cold stream of the platte but they waded across the stream hatchet in hand the water coming up to their hips on the further side grew some small willows which they cut and bore on their shoulders back to camp and after many efforts at last got the fire to burn and the supper cooked james came to the wagon where i was lying and meekly asked how much baking powder to put in the biscuits i replied shortly oh as much as you please i will admit that his biscuits that night were as light and nice as any that i have ever eaten and both he and my brother were quite elated with their success in getting the evening meal and said it did not matter whether i cooked any more for them as they could do it just as well if not better than i did the coffee also was fine but the dried corn which they had tried to cook was not a complete success this was a delicacy we did not indulge in every day it was usually saved for a special treat for our sunday dinner and i had always put it to soak for several hours to soften it before cooking a precaution the new cooks had not taken i was hungry and ate too heartily of the underdone corn the consequence was that i was very ill with a severe and painful attack of dysentery for several days finally becoming so weakened that i could no longer climb in or out of the wagon i was compelled to keep my bed as we journeyed along the jolting motion of the wagon soon became a perfect torture to me and at last became so unendurable that i implored my husband to take me out make my bed on the sand and let me die in peace he poor man was very much alarmed at my condition and was at his wits end to know what to do for me complying with my wish he had halted the team in the middle of the forenoon and was preparing my bed on the ground we were in the meantime overtaken by another emigrant team whose sole occupant was a blunt old missourian he stopped to inquire the cause of our delay so early in the day james told him of my illness describing my symptoms the old man then said what your woman needs is a good big dose of castor oil that'll straighten her out all right now one of the most peculiar oversights in preparing for this journey was that we had not provided ourselves with any medicine not one of us had ever been ill nor had we been accustomed to illness in our families and our friends believing in the hydropathic treatment 
had not suggested such a need to us. We were also five hundred miles from a drug store, but after a moment's thought, I remembered that among the toilet articles in my trunk was a bottle containing castor oil, bergamot, and bay rum, put up especially for a hair tonic that was much in vogue at that time. This was sought for at once by my husband, and pouring out a teacupful of the vile stuff in order to get enough of the oil, with grim determination I swallowed it down. Oh, the horror of that draught! To this day I never smell the odors of bay rum or bergamot without the vision of a poor, sick, emigrant woman lying on the sands of the desert. Offensive and obnoxious as the dose was, it had the desired effect and acted like a charm. I have since recommended the remedy a number of times. In a few days I was quite recovered and ready to continue our interrupted journey. I noticed that my men folks were only too willing to turn over the culinary department to me again, and really made quite commendable efforts to keep me supplied with fuel thereafter. The United States government sent out many trains of provisions to the different posts that were stationed far out on the plains, and these wagon trains would often travel near each other for help and protection their white canvas-covered wagons sometimes reaching as far as the eye could see. Many of these trains were composed entirely of ox-teams, and their drivers had a profane vocabulary that sent cold chills over me. Never in my life had I heard such strings of oaths come from the mouth of man. These immense caravans were called bull-trains, and their captains called bull-train bosses. The men who drove the teams were called bullwhackers. All of these government teamsters in their moments of leisure were anxious for something to read. Before leaving home, I had stowed away among my belongings a few favorite volumes to while away the hours of enforced leisure. My Shakespeare, Byron, and Burns, and a few others that I could not part with, I soon learned to hide very carefully and peruse with drawn curtains or they would have disappeared from my eye. The few novels and magazines that I possessed were loaned and re-loaned until they were so tattered and torn as to be scarcely legible. It was astonishing how great was the demand for something to read in those days of overland travel. The majority of those crossing the plains had taken no books with them, burdening themselves with nothing save the bare necessities of life. Anything in the shape of print was greedily devoured. Every scout, trapper, or other lone frontiersman with whom we came in contact would eagerly inquire for old newspapers, magazines, or novels, anything to read. It was impossible to buy reading matter on the road in those days. In fact, over a stretch of five hundred miles, there were only three or four post offices and from the time we left St. Joseph on the Missouri River until we reached Denver, three long months, we had no news from home and the dear ones left behind us. At intervals we were electrified with a passing glimpse of the overland stage, bearing the mails and sometimes passengers from the east, but they flew by us with such breakneck speed that it was impossible to even hail them. Yet I still watched for them day by day, 
for they seemed to be a connecting link between us and civilization. Occasionally we would pass an overland stage station, a low hut or cabin constructed wholly of adobe or dried mud. These huts were said to be very cool in summer and warm in winter, their walls being from two to three feet in thickness, and were considered proof against the severe blizzards that swept over the country, as well as bullet-proof in attacks from hostile Indians. I often wished that I might look into one of these huts, but never chanced to pass one when the host was at home. I had not the temerity to invade one without invitation, although the latch-string invariably hung on the outside. We usually stopped only long enough to take a drink from the rusty cup that hung from a pail of water near the door. One of the most wonderful sights on these desolate plains was the mirage. The first time this strange phenomenon appeared, I was filled with astonishment. While riding one day along the monotonous level road and gazing ahead at the wide expanse of sand and sagebrush, a peculiarly brilliant and dazzling light appeared like sunlight on the water. My first impression was that we were approaching a lake or some other large body of water. As I looked, this seemed to change, and a number of buildings came into view, but all upside down, and while still gazing at them, they slowly faded from my vision, and the supposed water again came into view. I was so overcome with the wonderful vision that I could not wait for the others to overtake me, and, turning my horse, rode rapidly back to the wagon to see if my husband and brother had witnessed the wonderful sight. They were as much surprised as myself, and though we had often read of the phenomena of mirages, this was our first sight of one. After that we saw them several times. End of section 3